Please turn with me to Luke chapter 6. Continue in our series through the Gospel of Luke. This morning we will end chapter 6. We're looking at verses 46 through 49. This morning's sermon is entitled, What is Your Foundation? For our worshipers in training, our key words are foundation, rock, and house. Now, in one way or another, all of us have probably heard it stated that it's possible for Jesus to be someone's Savior without Him being that person's Lord. Some will use different language than that. Some will use that very language. Perhaps you've heard it said, Well, I know that He's a Christian, but He's never acted like it. Others, as we've often considered here, feel assured by a prayer that they've prayed, an aisle that they've walked down, water they've been baptized in, but nothing in their life bears the true spiritual fruit of a faithful disciple as we considered last week. And this issue is what has been called Lordship Salvation. It was very prominent in the late 80s and early 90s in evangelicalism. Many people were arguing that it is possible to be saved by Jesus, but never ever in your life to display the fruits of that salvation by submission to the Lordship of Jesus. In other words, to state it as matter-of-factly as possible, It was believed that we can be saved by Christ, but never be required to do a single thing he commands of us. One writer stated it this way, It is imperative to trust Christ as personal Savior and be born again. But this is only the first decision. Acknowledging Jesus as Lord is made by believers. The decision to trust Christ as Savior and then make him Lord are two separate distinct decisions. The first is made by non-believers, the second only by believers. The two decisions may be close or distinct in time, but salvation must always precede lordship. It is possible, but miserable, to be saved without ever making Christ Lord of your life. Does that sound like the language of the Bible? Is it possible for someone to simply undergo a few ritualistic experiences and obtain salvation from Jesus, but never actually submit to any word that he is commanded? As we considered last week, is someone a Christian simply because they say they are? As we look at Jesus' conclusion to the Sermon on the Plain in Luke 6 this morning, Jesus is going to annihilate any presumption that he will save us without submission to his lordship. It is a faulty assumption to begin with to assume that anyone makes Jesus do anything. So making Jesus Lord is contrary to the word of God, which tells us that the Father has made him both Lord and Christ. He is Lord of all. And the biblical mandate is not to make Christ Lord, but rather to bow to his lordship. The lordship that is already rightly his. 
And Jesus will tell us this morning that those who reject his lordship and only profess with their lips and yet live lives completely contrary to his word are really not saved at all. It's a very sobering word. So let's begin by reading these four verses, beginning in verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the streams broke against the house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do, does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. And so the first thing we see in verse 46 is Jesus stressing the importance of obedience. In other words, Jesus says, Why do you claim to love me and follow me and be my disciple when you refuse to obey what I command? Jesus was addressing those of his hearers who would desire to gain from the fruits of salvation, but had no desire for any holiness, for godliness that God requires for their lives. I love you, Jesus. But listen, I still want to be my own boss. So do me a favor. Give me what I can gain in the end And you're just going to have to deal with whatever I do because it's my life and I'm going to live it however I want. But please, save me. Remember, Jesus' audience is most immediately the 12 apostles who've been commissioned to their new task. But there was also a great crowd, a great multitude of people who were hearing what Jesus said. So among them was Judas Iscariot and many others who might at this moment be calling Jesus Lord while in only a short time they will be calling for his death. Jesus is most certainly stressing the importance of our obedience toward him. Now, the issue of obedience to what God commands has really fallen on hard times. Well, in many ways over the last decade, many Christians have rediscovered and re-emphasized the amazing, free, liberating grace of God found in Christ Jesus who saved a wretch like me. That is such good news and a wonderful, wonderful thing. But so often, many of these same people want to put their fingers in their ears when the Apostle Paul says, Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And so this antinomian, no law, grace only, don't tell me what to do spirit is alive and well. There's an author named Jean Twinge. She's a sociology professor. She's done some really excellent work and some very telling studies. She wrote a book recently called Generation Me. And she says Generation Me includes those who were born 
who are being born now all the way to those who were born in the early 80s. Her latest work is called Generation Me, Why Today's Young Americans Are More Confident, Assertive, Entitled, and More Miserable Than Ever Before. It's a fascinating read if you're into cultural studies. But she reviewed hundreds of studies of various ages of students conducted over many, many years all across the country, literally literally results from millions of individuals. And she concluded in the end, I see no evidence that today's young people feel much attachment to duty. They have been consistently taught to put their own needs first and to focus on feeling good about themselves. They've been raised in a culture that places more focus on the self and less focus on the group, the society, and the community. The sayings have shifted to believe in yourself and you're special. It emphasizes individualism. And this gets reflected in personality traits and attitudes. People are more isolated and wrapped up in their own problems. And it doesn't bode well for society in general. Indeed, it does not bode well at all. But love of self is really nothing new, is it? The Bible addresses this very same issue on many different occasions. But our struggle in 21st century America is to recognize that what we most often want to call legalism is probably not legalism. What we often want to cast off as unnecessary or unimportant is many times very necessary and very important according to God. And what we often ignore, God has placed in flashing lights with pointing signs saying, pay attention. The call to Christian obedience in the form of seeking to walk faithfully in the law of God is repeatedly rejected as a form of pharisaical self-righteousness. When in reality, this is the very thing God calls us to for our sanctification. How do I know what pleases God? He has told us what is good, brothers and sisters. Do not have any other gods before me. Do not worship graven images. Do not use my name in vain. Honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And we could go on and on. This is loving God with all of our hearts, minds, souls, and strength, and loving our neighbor as ourself. And so once again, we see the vital importance of keeping the glorious gospel of grace inseparably tied to the law of God. What evidence do we have of a truly regenerated heart? Obedience to what God has commanded. You see, Jesus makes this point of obedience very important as an issue in our text this morning. Elsewhere, he stated this very fact very succinctly. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so we can conclude that Jesus is saying in verse 46, don't say you're a Christian and that you love me and that you follow me and that I'm your Savior and that I'm your Lord and yet refuse to obey what I tell you. You don't love me. You despise me. If you love me, you will do what I tell you even when it's difficult. He goes on in verse 47, everyone who comes to me and hears my word and does them. 
I will show you what he is like. Jesus draws a, a contrast that sets true disciples over and against those he has already mentioned. Those who are false professors of faith. And let's be clear that many will find themselves in this first category. Who've assumed all along that they are in fact true disciples when they are not. But Jesus gives three identifying elements of the response of a true disciple of Jesus. First, he says in verse 47, everyone who comes to me. Now, if you take the time to look up the instances in the Gospels when Jesus uses this statement, come to me. We see this contrast that Jesus is drawing even more vividly between those who are falsely professing faith and those who are true disciples of Jesus. True disciples come to Jesus. False professors either refuse to come, or they come with false motives. Remember back to the beginning of the Sermon on the Plain? Jesus was drawing a contrast between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world. So those who come to Jesus are those who are members of the kingdom of God. And have come most of all to receive Jesus. We see this in many ways throughout the scriptures. Matthew 11, 28. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Matthew 19, 14. Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for to such belong the kingdom of heaven. John 6:35 Jesus said, "I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst." Those who refuse to come to Jesus have forfeited their rights and have rejected all that Jesus is as a king, and they have sought after lesser things. Luke 14:26 If anyone comes to me, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. John 5.40, you refuse to come to me that you might have life. And yet we must remember that coming to Jesus is a sovereign work of God. It's not simply something I can turn on and off. It's not something I simply wake up one day and decide to do. It is by the sovereign grace of God in giving me a new heart and new affections that I would desire to come to Jesus. John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. So you see the first element of a true disciple is one who comes to Jesus. Secondly, he says, And hears my words. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words. Coming to Christ enables the believer to hear Christ. In other words, we're given ears to hear. Have you ever wondered what Jesus means when he tells parables? And at the end of those parables, he says, He who has ears, let him hear. He's emphasizing the reality that only those who have truly come to Christ... Only those that the Father has given to him will hear what he has said and understand by faith what Jesus means in terms of their own life. 
This is not merely hearing the words of his mouth and being able to recite back what was said. This is hearing by faith with a desire for obedience, a desire to do what Jesus is saying, which leads to the third element that Jesus points to as a response of a true disciple of Jesus. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them. Every time we truly hear the words of Jesus and are authentically moved, we must resolve to act upon it. To do what the Holy Spirit has convicted us us of in our hearts. Uh, Most of the time, the step of obedience will not be dramatic and grand, but what seems to be some small action. But if we're all honest, we can admit that there's been times we've been convicted by the Holy Spirit because of His Word, and then we fail to act upon it. But perhaps it may be even something very small, maybe an encouraging word or a note to pass on to someone an adjustment in your work habits, an apology to someone, a gift, a few words of witness, a a commitment to serve in a particular way. Whatever it is, the key is this. The Holy Spirit is actively working through God's Word to bring conviction in our lives that translates into true action. In other words, do it. This is the life of a true disciple of Christ, a doer of the word. True disciples, Jesus told those surrounding him, obey Christ, including the very sermon he's preaching on the plain. Loving enemies and praying for them. Offering forgiveness to those who have sinned against us. Not being merciless and judgmental or condemning living as citizens in the kingdom of God and not the kingdom of the world. These are the marks of a true disciple that are born out of a life of true faith in Jesus Christ. And yes, yes, we are saved by grace through faith alone in Christ alone, apart from works of the law. Yes, that is true. But true faith in Jesus Christ does not stand alone. True faith in Christ produces works of obedience. In fact, in Ephesians 2, the Apostle Paul gives one of the best statements of the gospel in all the Bible in verses 1 through 9. And then he caps it all off in giving us a purpose statement in verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. A true disciple will do what God commands. A true disciple will come to Jesus, will call him Lord, will hear his words, and will do what he says. He gives an illustration to us. I will show you what he is like. Verse 48, he is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the streams broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. So how do faithful disciples fare in the world? What can be said of their lives as they endure the results of a fallen nature of everything around us? In a few minutes, we're going to sing these precious words. When through the deep waters, I call thee to go. 
The rivers of sorrow shall not overflow. I will be with thee, thy troubles to bless, and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. You see, a disciple who has built a solid foundation upon the rock of Christ, not just professing to know him, but coming to him, hearing him, doing as he commands, this will be the disciple who stands and not be moved. Through deep waters, through fiery trials, through rivers of sorrow, troubles, deepest distress, the floods will rise, the streams will break, the waves will crash, but he will not be shaken. It is a silly and foolish thing to say what I've heard from time to time. You know, the only thing that matters is that someone understands the basic gospel message. Listen, that might sound well and good. But when I have to sit down with a doctor and he tells me I've got three months to live, tops. Or when faced with a miscarriage or when sudden death comes that I wasn't expecting, or my job is taken out from under my feet, or when my house burns to the ground, I assure you I'm going to want a more firm, more robust foundation than someone simply saying, Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. We can infer from what Jesus said that feelings-based, cliche Christianity will not get us very far. When what we feel takes precedence over what we know and what we believe and how we think according to the word of God, it won't take long before our foundation crumbles when the waves come crashing in. Why is Jesus so intent in ensuring that we understand what a true disciple is in terms of obedience to what he commands? Because it's these things that he commands of us that will prepare us for the day when we have to endure our fourth round of chemotherapy. When we have to bury an infant child in the ground. When we have to sift through the ashes of our home. When we have to look captors in the eye and stand faithfully for Christ in spite of our lives being on the line for our faith. You see, true disciples of Christ have a foundation that is immovable regardless of the circumstances. That doesn't mean Christians won't ask questions from time to time. It doesn't mean we won't have hard days and hard weeks and even struggle in being able to understand why God is doing what he's doing in that moment. But the essence of true discipleship is deeply knowing and finding union with he who is our firm foundation, who calls us to obedience for our own good that he would be glorified through us. In the end, the doers of the word will endure the fires of judgment and reign eternally with Jesus Christ. And in the meantime, we can and we will be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. He goes on in verse 49, but the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. 
the false professors of faith, those who claim to know and follow Jesus have no foundation at all. They've built their house on the ground, the constantly shifting sand that gives way when the storms come through. If you've ever been to or seen pictures of homes in most third world countries, you understand why a typical storm that might only cause a little bit of minor damage to our neighborhoods are catastrophic and destructive beyond repair to most of them. Most of the time they build their structures right on the ground without any foundation at all. The frame is a few crooked pieces of wood and an external structure is nailed together with maybe a few holes in the walls. Put a tarp or some sheet metal for a roof. And while this might work for a little while, while the season is right, when the flood arises, when the stream breaks against the house, it will fall and the ruin will be great. This is Jesus' illustration for the life of one who claims to know and follow Jesus, yet does nothing of what he commands. You see, duty and obedience aren't a part of this person's vocabulary because while he desires the benefits of a savior, he most certainly does not want to submit to the authority that is appointed over him. He is his own authority, or so he thinks. This, Jesus says, is great ruin. This is disastrous. Now, I think it's important for us to grasp just how vital the issue of the lordship of Christ in our lives in relationship to our obediences throughout the Bible. In other words, Jesus is telling us that in order for our houses to stand and be judged acceptable when the greatest of trials comes in the day of judgment, that we will know that our foundation is right. We will know if our structure is sound. The Bible points to the absolute necessity of yielding to Christ as Lord in order to inherit eternal life. Now, we can't overemphasize the fact that salvation cannot be earned by works of the law. Salvation is by grace, through faith. It does not come from ourselves. It is a gift of God. But my aim is to show us that the Bible, in loud, symphonic nature, resounds with the truth that faith which justifies also sanctifies. In other words, if we build a firm foundation... The foundation doesn't just sit there by itself. We build something on it. And all of our faith in Christ produces obedience. It's the very thing he said in verse 46. We will do what he says. So what I'm going to do is give us a barrage of texts that point to different aspects of necessity in the life of a true disciple. In other words, the Bible points to numerous Fruits, if you're thinking back to last week's text, that help us to determine whether or not we have the right foundation. These are the works of obedience that flow out of genuine faith in Jesus Christ. In the words of the Apostle James, what we will consider is, by my works, I will show you my faith. Because faith apart from works is useless. Faith apart from works is what? dead. Salvation is by grace through faith, but saving faith is no fruitless mental assent to some gospel facts. Jesus is clear 
Faith that saves is coming to Jesus, hearing him and doing what he tells us. It is grace-driven. It is faith-producing. It is all overflowing out of a heart of thankfulness that comes from regularly abiding in communion with Jesus with such satisfaction in who he is for us that our obedience shows that we are gradually being weaned away from the enslaving addictions of this world. So I'm going to give us 24 different texts to really prove the point. (laughs) But I want to let you know that this is only a very small sampling of what we could look at. So if you're a note taker, I will email this out to you so you don't have to write like crazy. First, the Bible emphasizes the necessity of doing good works. Matthew seven twenty one. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. John five twenty eight and 29. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Romans 2, 6 through 10. He will render to each one according to his works to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. The Bible emphasizes the necessity of obedience. John three thirty six. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. John fourteen fifteen. again, Jesus said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Romans six twelve and 14. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions, for sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law but under grace. 1 John 2, 4, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. The Bible emphasizes the necessity to forgive others. Matthew 6, forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, Neither will your father forgive your trespasses. Matthew eighteen thirty two through 35. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. The Bible emphasizes the necessity to, live, to not live according to the flesh. Romans eight twelve through 14. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. 
Galatians 5, 19 through 21. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. The Bible emphasizes the necessity of being free from the love of money. You cannot serve two gods. You cannot serve both God and money. Either you will love the one and hate the other, or you will despise the one and love the other. The Bible emphasizes the necessity of love to the Father and to the Son. John eight forty two. Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. Romans eight twenty eight. And we know for those who love God, all things will work together for good for those who are called according to his purposes. 1 John 2.15, do not love the world and the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The Bible emphasizes the need to love others. Galatians 5.6, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. 1 John 3.14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. The Bible emphasizes the necessity to love the truth. 2 Thessalonians 2.10, the Lord Jesus will kill all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. The Bible emphasizes the necessity to bridle the tongue. James 1.26, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. The Bible emphasizes the necessity of perseverance. Mark 13.13, he who endures to the end will be saved. Luke 9.62, Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. The Bible emphasizes the necessity of walking in the light. 1 John 1.7 But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. And lastly, the Bible emphasizes the necessity of repentance. Luke 5.32 I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. And Acts 3.19 Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. And so we have to ask ourselves this morning, what is my foundation? Am I hearing or am I not hearing? Am I doing the word or am I not doing the word? I think the evidence is clear. The answers to these questions are decisive for this life, but most importantly for the life to come. Only two houses are being built. Those with foundations and those without. Which house is yours? What about those around you? Where must one begin? One must begin with what Jesus said. 
Come to him, hear his word, and do it. Repent of your sins, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and walk in faithfulness to him. As Jesus made so clear when they asked him, what must we do to do the works that God requires? Jesus answered them, the work of God is this, to believe in the one whom he has sent. You see, not one of us will do any of these things with any form of perfection. We will fail time and time again in our efforts. But thanks be to God that while we strive for obedience, while we strive for holiness, while we strive for godliness, our salvation is secure in the finished, perfect work of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. He lived a perfect, law-fulfilling life and died a sinner's death on behalf of his people that we need not depend on our own faulty, imperfect righteousness, but can know that the righteousness of Christ has been counted as ours if we are in him. He has made us able to obey. He has made us able to submit. And he has made us able to bear fruit if we are Christians. With new hearts, with new affections, we are able to show our faith with our works so that God is glorified through us. True faith is not stale. True faith is not dead. True faith is not lifeless. True faith works in marvelous ways, in ways that our once unregenerate hearts never desired. And so the question for us this morning is, do you know and trust and love the Lord Jesus Christ, not simply as your Savior, but as your Lord? If you do, then the call is for us to listen to him and to be doers of his word. Have you built your house on a faulty foundation of self-worth and self-love and self-righteousness? If so, then submit yourself to the one and only King, Jesus Christ, by admitting your sin, repenting of your sin, and bowing your knee to his authority over all of your life. It's for your good. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the tension that arises in your word when we recognize that we truly are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from works of the law. And yet the evidence of that true faith is obedience to all that you have commanded of us. And so we thank you, God, that you have not left us to figure out what you want from us on our own that you've not left us wandering aimlessly, seeking to figure out how it is that we can please God. But rather you've revealed to us in your word what you want from us, how you are glorified through us, and how we can live in a way that brings all the glory and all the honor to you and works together for our greatest good. So we thank you, Lord, for the scriptures that call us to obedience. And we pray, God, that you would make us a people 
who rests in the firm foundation of our salvation in Jesus Christ, which is finished and secure. Something that we cannot earn, something that we did not desire, or anything that we ever deserved and warranted. But you in your merciful, gracious love toward us have called your people out of darkness into light and set us upon the firm foundation of Jesus Christ that we might live. And so we pray that we would live life more abundantly by walking in obedience to what you have commanded. And Lord, for those in here this morning who simply rest upon Jesus for their salvation but have refused to bow their knee to him as Lord. We pray, O God, that they would see rightly from your word that the Lordship of Christ and our Savior Christ are inseparably tied together and that we must see and believe and understand that Jesus is both Savior and Lord. So, Lord, thank you. Thank you for the clarity of your word for the grace of our dear Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and for your mercy, that when we walk in disobedience, that you not crush us, but you sustain us as your people and steer us back on the right path that we can live for your glory on the narrow path with a narrow gate that we might dwell with Jesus forever and ever in worship, in humility. Thank you, O God, for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.